0: Old Vines, written by Sevdrak and read by Literarian. Chapter 27 When the Cork Crumbles, Part 2 Crowley's tomatoes are exploding. The first of the grape tomatoes have been turning red at a pace of three to four a day. Crowley simply pops them into his mouth as he tends the garden, because there's absolutely nothing like that juicy pop of sweet, rich flavor. The Roma plant has outgrown its stake and its second stake and is perilously close to having to lean up against the house. The heirlooms are lagging, but whatever varietal of big boy he planted in the corner is serving up big... Juicy reds every few days. It's been lovely. The beans are healthy, and he has a few eggplants that look delectable. He doesn't do anything fancy, just preps them in big fat slices and fries them in a pan. He's going to have an arse load of zucchini, too, it looks like, which is a problem he's happy to deal with. He collects a serving's worth of salad greens, a mixed pack, he could identify them if he focused, but he isn't in the mood, and a hot pepper and a few beets. The tomatoes, of course. He picked up a couple ears of corn off of a stand he passed while running errands, and he has salmon to grill as well. The corn is half shucked and goes into the sink, half full of water, to properly soak. The greens and beets are combined into a salad with tomatoes and his second try at homemade croutons. Crowley doesn't eat a lot, but he's entranced by his ability to make things himself. It makes sense. The winery is one big experiment at that. He shouldn't be surprised when it bleeds into his other spaces. He's a grower, a maker at heart. The grill's heating. He drops the salmon into a bowl and starts with sesame oil, soy and a bit of brown sugar. Some cayenne pepper for heat. This is the kind of meal he would like to make for two, really. It's almost ridiculous to turn on the grill when it's just him and a piece of fish and two ears of corn he knows he won't finish anyway— Crowley stops his hand right outside the pocket of his jeans, where it had been creeping towards his phone. He's still a fucking mess. He isn't ready to see Aziraphale. Isn't even ready to talk to him. To text him, for fuck's sake. Crowley breathes deeply. His hands still smell like tomato plants, that sharp scent that can linger for hours. He presses them to his face, breathes in the scent of another thing he made. Tries to ground himself again. He's going to have to reply eventually. Aziraphale sends a few texts a day, most of them apologetic and asking for a response. Some of them are random, as if there's a chance they can just drop back into normal conversation like nothing happened. Crowley has read them all. He has not said a word. He gets why felt did what he did. Oh, does he get it? It's the same kind of fucking thing that tanked his first fucking career. Trusting people to do the right thing and then finding out too late that they're only interested in covering their own ass. That's probably why it hurts so badly. It's a twice-bled wound being kicked in the exact same rib as before. Things never heal straight, and they never heal fully. Crowley's just surprised it took this long. Eventually, he won't be able to dodge the other man. Aziraphale will apologize, and Crowley will accept it, because he gets it. He just isn't sure what happens next. His fucking heart wants Aziraphale like his grapes need sun and mist, and everything about it hurts. It just hurts because he hurts. Crowley had thought there was something between them, something unique and special. He thought they were exploring the possibility of a thing he'd never had before. Now he wonders... Does Aziraphale just do this? Head off on book-writing trips, find a summer lover, then leave them when he's done? Is this thing between them only physical? Is there anything between them? No, don't ask that. There is. Crowley has to believe that, or he's just going to go round the bend. Nat will find him camping out in the old vines like a hobo, ranting about the stars or some shit. Crowley pulls out his mobile and looks at it. He sets it down on the counter. He can't answer anything right now. It's time to make dinner. He's here. Anathema has texted. Crowley's on the floor, leaning up against his couch and suddenly wondering whether he can build a pillow fort in his own house. Of course he can. If Newt can do it, he absolutely has to be able to do it. I'm assuming you don't want us to remove him, kick him out or treat him poorly, right? Oh, Jesus, no. Crowley stares. Azira fells here, on his ground, in his building. Crowley could stand up and walk the distance. Fifty feet? Fifty yards? What the fuck is distance anyway? And go look Azira fell in the face. He won't. Of course he won't. But he could. He asked Newt about you. What did he say? Newt did what he does best and played very stupid. Oh, Mr. Crowley, he is out somewhere. What can I get you? Bless his stupid ass. It's a nice ass, you know. I meant what did... He say. Crowley rocks a bit on the floor. Staying still feels too vulnerable. Oh, he asked where you were and if he could expect you tonight. He seems kind of upset that you aren't here. I'm not coming, you're in charge. BRB, selling all of the reserve. Crowley focuses on taking deep breaths. There's a small part of him that's tempted to just wander over. Rip off the band-aid. Let the knife sink in. It could be over then, and he wouldn't have to sit here and wonder about all the things he's afraid of. But he isn't going to. His hands are already shaking. Jesus fucking Christ, he needs to just buck up. Face it, this is stupid. He shouldn't at all be feeling this fucking delicate. He's been here for 11 years without an Aziraphale, and he can be here 11 more without one. It was a nice dream, sure. But he's fine. Crowley's fine. He's always fucking fine. He sits on the floor, knees tucked up and arms wrapped around them, until the sun sets. Crowley's emotions always come out in big, fat bursts, and they hit like a train hits, like a hurricane hits. As such, Crowley avoids having most of them as best he can. He has constructed a distance, and, oh yeah, it's a construct. The glasses are mostly superficial. That slows them down enough that when they hit, it's more like being love-tapped by the Bentley rather than smashed into pieces by a sail barge. One of the ways he avoids this kind of pain is by avoiding thinking about his future in general. Crowley has learned not to want. When you want something, he thinks, it's really just putting a giant spotlight on that thing, yelling at the universe to come and get it. Once you admit a want, then you cannot get it, and that opens up a whole bunch of shitty doors. It's really why he doesn't talk about a lot of personal shit either. He made the mistake once, in his previous lifetime, of mentioning he was thinking about looking for a new apartment. For the next six goddamned weeks, all anyone at work had wanted to ask about was the new place. It ended up being so fucking annoying he'd faked sick for three days. When he came back, all they wanted to ask about was his cough. It isn't that it's bad to have people care about him. It's more that he's so overwhelmed by care and so infuriated at the performative aspect of it that it's way easier to avoid a whole lot of the annoying bits by just never talking about himself ever. Crowley thinks about ecstasies. He knows that continuing the status quo is impossible. Well, no, it isn't impossible. He could probably operate here forever, but his heart does want to grow. He has three precious acres he hasn't been able to touch and, yeah, he wants to plant them. He wants to get out from under H.E.L. law. He wants to be able to tell Huster and Ligger to go fuck off a cliff. Ectasies is his life and he doesn't want his life to be stagnant. So he thinks about it. He thinks about letting Anathema and Newt in. About letting Adam and Pepper and Wensleydale and Brian all put down money towards his debts. He thinks about sharing shares and having to consult others. Then he thinks about the freedom he'd have knowing that the only people he owed were ones that he liked. He thinks about taking Anathema into the old vines, showing her the thirty-some-year-old roots, the thickness of some of the vines. Then he thinks about Aziraphale. Of course. Because he can't fucking stop thinking about the man for more than five fucking minutes at a time. He's known Nat and Newt and the Them for years, though. He knows by now they wouldn't just flip like that, right? They wouldn't just abandon him and make decisions on their own, right? They aren't going to just move past him like he isn't there. Fucking hell. Crowley can't think about the future because he's just realized there's no guarantee Aziraphale will be in it at all... And if he realized in April just how fucking deep this was going to get, he would have... What? Done something different? Crowley loves temptation. He would have done the same fucking thing no matter what. Would have reached out to kiss those lips, to target those clothes, to feel those hands on him. Does he regret it? Crowley isn't sure yet. (laughs) Left something on your porch. What the fuck? Your friend gave it to me. Which friend I have plenty. (laughs) You know which one I zero... Well, I don't care how you spell his name. Newt, you're the worst. At spelling, yeah, mate. The fuck is it anyway? IDK, bro. It's like a million pages in a folder that just says Crowley on the front. I didn't fucking open it. Crowley is staring down at the folder in his hands. It's a simple Manila folder, his name written on the front, in carefully scripted capitals. He can recognize Aziraphale's handwriting. When on earth did that happen? From watching him scribble away in his little book? Perhaps. There's a good half-inch of paper inside here. What on earth did Aziraphale send him? He opens it up and sees that the top sheet opens with Crowley. My dearest Crowley. Crowley sets the folder down. He has an open bottle of Apocalypse, Although now that he has a glass poured, he isn't really sure he wants to just launch into the drinking. He might get weepy, and that's absolutely not ideal. Bugger all that for a lark. But he needs something to read this. God, is this just the longest Dear John letter in the history of breakup letters? He isn't looking forward to reading 50 fucking pages of why Aziraphale can't be with him. He'd prefer a text message, for Christ's sake. Oh, Crowley checks his phone. Crowley, I've left something for you with your friend Newt in the tasting room. I am hoping you'll do me the honor of reading it, although I understand it isn't a fair thing to ask when I've hurt you this badly. It's my book, you see. The real one. It will make more sense if you read the letter I attached. I haven't heard from you, and that's well within your rights, Crowley. But I will in this one case ask whether you would reply to this and tell me whether or not you've read it. If you have, I hope we can talk. If you refuse to, then I guess I'll know how you feel, although hopefully we can talk anyway. That's it. Only Fell sends text messages as if they're novels. Crowley drinks the apocalypse. He can taste the age in it. Old vines produce well-developed grapes with deeper flavors. Here he knows the sand and the clay and the decades they've been standing. It's like the taste of an old friend, the feel of a hand on his back. Crowley. My dearest Crowley. The first thing you should understand about me is that I appear to be a coward of the highest degree. I've known this about myself for some time, but only recently have I realized just how much it has come to rule my life. I fear... not change, really. I fear upset. I especially fear upsetting those with power over my own life. I fear the punishment and the disappointment both. None of this is an excuse, mind you, for the abhorrent way I tossed you aside Saturday morning. My hope is that you've opened this folder in an attempt to better understand me, so I offer reason and explanation, knowing it is no excuse." Your silence alone has shown me how much of an idiot I've been. It aches like someone has pried open my ribcage. As you know, I was sent here to increase my blog following and to write a book. In truth, I've been writing two books because I am a coward. One book is written in Gabriel's style, The way my employer thinks books must be written in order to sell. It is, in fact, quite horrible and isn't what you're holding in your hands. The other book has poured out of me like water bursting through a pipe no longer able to hold it back. The words flow onto the page with little effort. This second work is about me and my feelings, and has forced me to look at some terribly uncomfortable truths I have been attempting to hide from myself. I've only recently realized that I have been writing the story of... of you and I, if I may be so bold. I do not know what to do with myself at this point. There is so much up in the air... So many things I have convinced myself are for the best when they may not be. My entire career hangs on the decisions I'll make in the next few weeks and that terrifies me more than I can explain in words. Without my career, what am I? Who am I? And yet... Can I continue to allow this continual disassembly of who I think I am for the whims of a corporation so far separated from reality? I'm lost, Crowley. I don't know. I am very, very good at lying to myself. As such, I feel like I've lied to you by proxy and I hate myself for it. When I'm around you, everything seems right. I'm confident and secure, sure, but only there. I hate that I've capitulated to Gabriel's whims. I hate that I panicked so badly that morning. I hate that I've hurt you. I don't know what to do with all of these self-realizations. They sit here in my cupped palms, fragile and delicate, young birds who don't know how to fly. What I do know is that I don't want to lose you. I do not know what to call this thing between us, and at this point you've more right than I to define it. But the thought of never speaking to you again feels unallowable. No matter what direction my future might take, I think I want you in it. The nature of that involvement is a thing we can decide together, and you'll feel no pressure from me on it until you're ready to respond. As such, and with an abject apology, I offer you this. No one else has seen these words, not even Warlock. This is a book about you and me, and as such, you deserve to be the first. Yours, Raphael. He isn't fucking crying. That would be stupid. So he isn't. There's no reason to. He shouldn't be sad or upset anymore. This is Aziraphale's attempt at an... Apology? Explanation? And Crowley is willing to see where it's going. He's already admitted to himself that he understands why Aziraphale acted the way he did, even if he doesn't necessarily like it, and he's been given this gift. Why on earth would he be crying? There's just something in the... fuck, in the tone of it that's so... It reminds Crowley of nights that have been just him and Aziraphale at the tasting bar, with Anathema or Newt or Adam happily rumbling round in the background. It reminds him of the way Aziraphale's diction goes smooth and many-syllabled the more he drinks the way it gentles his tone and softens his phrasing, even as his metaphors grow more complex. Crowley recognises it, is what he's saying, and if he'd known that this was what Aziraphale sounded like, talking from his heart, he might have taken full advantage a long time ago. He isn't going to cry, though. It's just that... Raphael sounds so lost here. He sounds like he's reached a place that Crowley doesn't like to think of him seeing alone, even though, yes, goddammit, logic, Crowley himself is still hurting, and his chest aches at it. This is a small piece of a bigger thing, and maybe Crowley has also been a damned fool because he's starting to see all of the ways that Aziraphale could have lied to himself as this thing between them grew. How fucking devastating does it have to be to see them now, drawn into the full sun of July and California. No escape here, no rain and no cloudy days. The light bakes. He doesn't feel guilty for having drawn back, nor does he feel ashamed for hurting. What Crowley feels is something he's probably going to have to call sympathy, or maybe empathy, which fucking sucks and no one can ever tell Anathema, ever, because this here is only the peak of the iceberg of things Aziraphale's going through right now, And he has to be so damn scared, and Crowley doesn't have to forgive or forget or do anything at all to feel sorry for him about that. He isn't crying, though. I've made a friend. He's obnoxious and boisterous and terribly rude. He's curious and insatiable and absolutely brilliant. He walks the lands of this California terra like he owns it and he seems like he murmurs hit lullabies, night songs to make the vines grow tall and terrible and overwhelming. Crowley's choking. But I have made a friend here. He is arrogant and awful and amazing. He is descriptive and disclosing and deprecating. He knows what he is talking about, and yet he gifts it to me like a package. Glowing and welcoming, a constellation of tastes he's waiting for me to walk within, to describe with my own mouth and my own words. God, he's laughing. Laughing. It's about him, and he can't fucking stop giggling. felt words are a treat, a blessing. The way he's describing wine country makes Crowley stop to think, to take it in. He's been here for 11 years, and sure, that's maybe only a... mumbles numbers percentage of his life, but it's far longer than the three, four months Azirafel has been here. The thing is, Crowley hadn't really been into wine before, so he'd been able to move out here with a clean palate. The countryside had taken him over, for sure, but he'd been starting in a very different place. California wine country isn't new, of course. There have been winemakers here since the mid-1800s. There have been experts talking about it for nearly as long. I won't be that kind of oblivious privileged asshole who pretends he discovered something new that no one else has ever seen. Plenty have. Even when I lived in London, I heard talk and read articles. I even tasted a few rare vintages before I moved to Los Angeles for my current work. And I've visited many places Europe might call the heart of their wine output. Italy... Oh, I've spent weeks in Italy, drenched in the sunlight and the scent of olive oil and the food and the way their wines are just deep enough to break up the flavours in your mouth and serve them to you separately and with panache. France. I've spent a number of weekends consuming nothing but bread and cheese and the Burgundy. Spain. I could live in Spain for a month straight and consume nothing other than their deep tomato-based dishes and rats to absolutely die for. And that's only the biggest three. There are other countries, other nooks and crannies that I could dive into and not come up for a long while. But none have challenged me like California – None have reared up in front of me like a man standing from a chair and demanding my attention. Maybe it's because I grew up with the faintest tastes of Europe on the back of my tongue. Drinking wine in California is like a slap to the face. It's a calling. California is this new thing and I'm steeped in the old and the elderly. Yes, I wear bow ties. You don't have to point it out again. But I could spend every breath of the rest of my life here and never taste the same thing twice. That's what's here. That's the way things have developed and there is a part of me that wants nothing better than that. And yes, I realize I could spend a lifetime in Europe in France alone, doing the same thing. Of course. But other people have done that, and I've followed in their footsteps. Out here, in the unique soil of the Russian River Valley, my footprints are my own. Newness, to me, is a breath of fresh air. And California, the fairest air I've ever tasted. The book is raw. Crowley may have considered his moments with Aziraphale out in the vines as vulnerable, and yes, they were. He'd told a story only a handful of people knew, and he'd told it true, carrying as much weight as it needed to. But... There's something safer about the verbal sharing, since it's only recorded in the minds of the speaker and the listeners. This is writ. This is Azirafel's heart, drawn out in letters and punctuation over a number of pages like a specimen pinned to parchment. And this is it, Crowley thinks. Any thoughts he may have had about his own vulnerability, any time he may have wondered if Aziraphale would return the same, well, this is it, the tell-all, the reveal. Aziraphale is writ large on these pages, bold and beautiful and sloppy. Troubled, terrified, a disaster in the making. Crowley's heart aches. He offered up a piece of his heart in the darkness, in the vines And in the darkness later, between their bodies Aziraphale, here, has spelled his out using an alphabet only he can summon The kind that leaves shadows on a page I was born the eldest in a family of four Azir Raphael has written. A family that prided themselves on piety, on thrift, on the superiority of denial. We were not poor, oh heavens no, and yet we grew up sitting on couches with holes in the upholstery, clothing from second hand stores, and meat bought from the bargain bin. We lived in shabby comfort as my parents watched their bank account grow and condescended down to everyone around them who had new carpet. Is it any surprise that I'm such an extravagant glutton? I say that without insult. Here, within these secret pages, I know what I am. I know where I come from. That might be why I took up blogging in the first place, I think. Not just to experience such things myself, but to... to help share them with others. One doesn't need to be rich to experience the luxury of a 15-pound bottle of wine paired with a nice cheese. That's a gift accessible to all. No one should starve themselves of comfort for the sake of... Well, if I starve myself from comforts these days, it's things I'm not sure I deserve, or things I'm not sure I will be able to keep. For all of my big talk, maybe I'm still living in the shadow of that house, just a bit. He's hit the bottom of the bottle but Crowley feels strangely calm with it. Aziraphale's words are soothing. Crowley feels the soft, drunk heat of apocalypse, sure, but in the way that he feels relaxed, drawn out like a warm bath. His initial emotional responses, so sharp with uncertainty, have been ground down and leveled out by Aziraphale's honest, friendly prose. He has a gift, his angel, he really does. This book tells so much, not only by the words on the page, but in the manner that they're spoken. My manager is a terribly boggling work. He combines the condescending and the genuine so well that you've no idea what on earth he means by it. You can only infer around the edges that it's not meant to be nice. Sometimes I wonder whether he simply has no understanding of tact, but then he'll say something so outright cruel it has to be intentional. He is an expert at couching these things in blinding smiles and exclamation points as further camouflage. I am fairly sure I despise him. I thought it worth it once. Tolerated a toxic soul in order to fulfill my dreams. But I'm starting to see, to understand, what this is costing me. And how can Crowley not feel that? His first career was a fucking mess, sure. But then he fell from grace and he's sworn since then to never lie to himself in the same ways. He has an advantage here. And the fact that he's been believing Aziraphale's words rather than digging in deeper. Not that it's his fault or his responsibility, but Azira feels hidden so much beneath a shallow layer of sand. I think I could very easily be in love with you if I let myself. The final entry reads. Okay. Fine, fuck it. No, Crowley's crying. Just a little, though. It's something like 4.30am. Crowley's been through the pages twice. As much as the sunglasses are mostly an affectation, his eyesight isn't perfect either, and he's never been a fast reader. Especially when he's been crying. Just a little. Crowley breathes in a deep, ragged breath, and then exhales it. He's ended up in his bed, with all three of his windows wide open to let the cool air of the night inside. His fan is twirling ahead on low, and he's tucked up under the covers with a giant knit cardigan pulled around him because the brace is chilly against his skin. It's good chill, the kind of night that's worth tangling up into sheets and a blanket. The kind of night that isn't cold, but just cool enough to let you know all of your nerves are still alive. He has set the pages aside for now. He really already knows what he's going to do. He picks up his phone and pecks out with one finger. I did read your book. His hands are still holding it, thumbs on the screen, when he sees the symbol flash up that means Rafel is typing. What the fuck? Did he stay up this late just in the hopes that Crowley might answer tonight? Or is he sleepless regardless? Or did he set some kind of... And which is preferable anyway? Thank you. I do hope it was meaningful. Crowley starts and deletes probably three dozen words. He has no idea how to word this feeling that's bursting out of his chest. In the end, though, he doesn't have to, because felt sends one more message. And? It's everything either of them have wanted, have thought or dreamed about, have been pushing for, or considering, or just plain yearning for. Crowley types, slowly. We should probably talk. His hands hover there, and for a moment, Crowley feels a light with everything. He has been deeper into his emotions this evening than many other nights before, and that isn't a place he likes to be, and isn't a place he's good at being besides but something inside of him is floating like a feather, and while he isn't naive enough to think it's hope, Crowley still thinks it's something. He amends the message and then sends it before he can second-guess himself. We should probably talk tomorrow, if you still want. Angel.